This episode is brought to you with the support of Rocasa Organics. We love Rocasa Organics. We are so glad that we found them. They are truly dedicated to helping your family thrive through natural products with ingredients you can trust. They have a high commitment to excellence and quality, and they are on a mission to provide clean, non-toxic, completely natural and effective products for your family. This company is dedicated to empowering people to improve their immune systems, balance their hormones, improve sleep, take care of themselves, and even spruce up their households all naturally. When you go to their website, rowcastleorganics.com and just scroll through some of their products, you will be amazed. These products are unique. The things they have for hormones and immune system is just so cool. And I am always looking for the best all natural cleaning ingredients as well. So you guys, you got to go check out rowcastleorganics.com and enter the code BOOMCLAP to save yourself 20% off your order. Welcome to the Boom Clap Podcast. Today, we are interviewing our friend, Shanda Fulbright. She's not only our friend, she's a really just solid, rock solid Christian woman who has gotten into apologetics and she teaches a lot of kids, a lot of women. She teaches people of all ages through her social media platform, but also online courses. Um, We talked to her a little bit about... um, for a second, a brief second, I mentioned that she uh, zoomed into my daughter's apologetics class. And I just appreciate Shanda. Um, One thing that my daughter said (laughs) afterwards was this girl knows her stuff. And I'm like, if a 12 year old realizes somebody knows her stuff, she does like she does know her stuff. She's rock solid. So we're so happy to have her on today. I'll tell you a little bit about her first. Shanda is a wife. She's a mom to three boys. She's the host also of a podcast, Her Faith Inspires, where she talks about cultural issues and tackles them with biblical truth. She is the co-author of Let's Get Real, Examining the Evidence of God with Dr. Frank Turek of crossexamine.org. She teaches students of all ages, like I said, Christian apologetics and stresses the importance of biblical literacy as a path to biblical worldview. She's doing big things and we're so happy to have her on today and to be able to call her a friend. Before we get into this interview with her, I want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button. That's how we show up on your phone each week without having to be reminded on our social media pages that we have a new episode out. It'll just come onto your phone. Also, don't forget to leave us a review. You can just hit the star button or you can leave us a written review. We always greatly, greatly appreciate those. Not only is it uplifting to hear, you know, to, to read a review, uh, it also just helps push our podcast out to other listeners who may not have heard of us yet. Another way you can support our podcast is by going to theboomclapcommunity.com. We do quarterly literary reviews where we take a book, we read it, and then we go through it together with questions and answers and discuss it on our monthly meetups. So we meet up monthly on a video chat and you guys can ask us questions about the podcast. You can, uh, ask us questions about something totally unrelated to the podcast. We always encourage you to send us emails if you're going to be on those monthly uh, meetups with us and let us know the things that you want to talk about ahead of time so that we can discuss what you want to talk about. It's just a way for us to get to know you better, you to get get to know us better and create a real community around this podcast. It's also just a way to support us. And also Cecily sends out really great emails every week discussing what we talked about on the podcast, giving you links to the things that we talked about on the podcast. And then 
also some things that we didn't get to because we can't get to everything on each episode that you need to know about in the world. So anyway, we would love for you to check out the boomclapcommunity.com. Now let's get into our interview with Shanda. Hey, Shanda, we're so glad to have you back with us on the Boom Clap podcast. I think you were on with us last summer, maybe, right? I think it's yeah, maybe so, longer than that, maybe a little longer. I can't, it's been a while, but yeah. Well, you know what? Like Cecily and I were looking back for an episode a while back and we we're like, I think we recorded that just a few months ago. And it was like a year and a half ago. So time flies. And <laughs> you think you talked about something very recently and it was like, you know, the beginning of when you started podcasting or something. So anyway, um, before we got on here, we were just talking and asking you about South Carolina because you, I think when you were on with us last time, you had just moved to South Carolina from California. So yes. how, how are things going there? It's good. It's been about 18 months since we moved and I was pretty adamant to leave California. So I kept saying with every new policy mm. and every situation that we found ourselves in with the school system and things like that, they were just putting gas in our tank to leave. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I kept saying. I'm like, something would happen. And I'd be like, they're just putting gas in our tank. Mm-hmm. So me, I'm not the type of person that likes change at all. And my husband had like brought up over the years, like, what if we moved down the street or what if we moved around the corner or what if we moved to this neighborhood? I'm like, no, that's just too far away from family. And then one day I said, let's move to South Carolina, which (laughs) completely across the other side of the country. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't necessarily South Carolina at the time. It was just like, we need to consider moving. Mm -hmm. And so we did. And at first, I think the first few months, I think we were in like this honeymoon stage because it was so different than... California because we get four seasons here and of course the culture is different Mm -hmm. and so you're like wow that's beautiful the trees are all green and you know all this stuff and then Mm -hmm. after a while you realize like I don't know how to get anywhere without maps like google maps or whatever (laughs) and I don't have my childhood friends that I can just call up and have a barbecue like you have to all new friends a whole new community find a new Mm -hmm. church a different gym And so you lose a lot of those connections. So that started to kind of, after I think six months, I think it was after Christmas last year, I kind of started realizing that I was kind of grieving the loss of Mm -hmm. normal life that I had because I was born and raised in California and never thought I would leave. So it was never a moment that I regretted it though. Like I just knew it was going to be hard. You have to push Mm -hmm. through. So it was just life is going to be different. And sometimes I look around and think, well, we live here forever. Like, is this, cause I must right. have, like, I want to stake my claim to a place that I can call home and I'll be there forever. Yeah. You just never know where life's going to move you, I guess, along and how God's going to take all those different situations and grow you. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's getting easier. We're making friends. We have found a church, you know, we have a routine and oddly enough, our kids have adjusted quicker than the adults. Right. That is strange and something I didn't expect to happen. So, you know, it's, it's had its goods and bads, but the goods outweigh the bads. And we look back and we realize, I mean, even now with every new policy, I'm like, see ya. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's like, I would have, if I was still there, I'd be kicking myself because I feel like during that 2020, 2021 
time frame, we had an opportunity, like an open window, because we didn't go back to normal in California for so much longer than most in the country. Like my kids were out of school for almost an entire, well, they were, they were out of school for an entire year with no option to go back to school. And when they went back to school, they went back two and a half hours a day. They were in high mm-hmm. school. One of my wow. boys was in dual language. You can't learn another, a second language with two and a half hours a day, you know, and part of your time on, on Zoom. So um, that was our window of opportunity. So if we were going to make a change, we needed to do it then before you got back to quote unquote normal. And it's easier, easy to go to status quo. So... I, I don't regret it at all. I never have. I just miss things that, you know, I miss things about growing up in a place that I've lived my entire life. And mm-hmm. it is you can go back and visit, but there's great things about this place too. They're just not as familiar. And mm-hmm. I think the biggest lesson I learn is that comfort is a trap. So even if you, even if you know it's the right thing, sometimes you'll stay with the comfort of knowing what's going to happen next and knowing what you're going to wake up to the next day just mm-hmm. because the familiar and the comfort of the familiar is what makes you stay in your, your place and never make a change. So for me, I thought, gosh, I didn't realize how easy it is to become complacent until I did move, until something jumbled up my world, you know, like mm-hmm. the COVID thing. And made us really reevaluate how we were living life. And if we were going to continue to accept that for our kids, mostly it was for our kids. Because I thought if my kids get married one day and they settle down, they're not going to want to settle here. They're going to be like, we got to go because look at the school systems. They've only got mm-hmm. worse. Mm-hmm. So I thought they at least need a place where they can, if they want to move, okay, that's on them. But I wanted to make sure that they had a place where they can grow their own families. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's actually something that I think about often where I live and I I have no desire to move or anything like that, but it's very expensive here. It's like one of the most expensive places in the world. And I'm like, we have three kids and they have to somehow afford to build their families and build their homes. And I'm like, if I want them to build a home near me, I don't see how that's possible where we live. And so I have moments like that too, where I'm like, huh, I think that's a really good thing to think ahead before your kids are out of the nest that it would be nice to give them an option to be able to actually build a home. And in your case, it was policy. And in my case, maybe it should be policy too. But affordability is a huge one here. But I like what you said about comfort being a trap. And I think that's applicable to all areas of life. Um, Comfort is a trap. Convenience is a trap. And I, I think it's really brave that you guys moved. Like, I, I really think it's so brave, especially as you start peeling back those layers of the things you don't necessarily think about or the things you don't think you're going to miss um, yeah. or inserting yourself into, yeah, like you said, new church, new gym, new communities. And that's really a hard thing to do. So good on you guys for doing it, I think, especially for someone who doesn't like change. So brave. And it's, it's really cool to hear stories of people that are willing to step out like that. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, you said that they were putting gas in your tank essentially to leave with every new policy, but I just, it just made me think, did you hear that they were actually trying to pass something where they're going to tax people to leave? So like, they're not going to be putting gas in your tank. (laughs) They're going to be charging you to leave California. Yeah. They started talking about that before we left. So we knew that that was something, but you have to, it's like for the really, really rich, you have to make, I think it's within a $10 million something to that effect range. So 
we wouldn't qualify, you know? (laughs) So it's like, but I did hear that that is something. And I know South Carolina is actually getting a lot of new like transplants. So they've actually had to increase when you register your car, put Mm -hmm. put an increase on that because of just roads and different (laughs) infrastructure. So they're like, um, Hey guys, we're okay with you moving here, but you got to help us pay for the roads. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I think everyone's feeling it. California is losing money. How do we keep our money? South Carolina is gaining people. How do we make it accessible to others? So the states are going to find that they're in a little bit of a predicament with either the moving or the population increase, you know? And so, yeah, California, that's just one of the wacky things that they're putting out there, but I'm okay if they wanted to tax me to leave, fine, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's crazy. And again, it's for those really high income people because the businesses that have left California, um, like Tesla and uh, several, many others, um, they're feeling it, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, you'd think like as the leadership in that state, I mean, I know that they're obviously not thinking rationally, but you'd be like, man, if we have to tax people to leave because people are leaving in such high numbers, maybe there's something we need to change. And instead of thinking of like, what could we change? They're like, actually, let's just tax people yeah. so that it's it's less affordable to leave, which is like, oh, right. So right. crazy. Yeah. It's not, what can we do to keep them to stay? Yeah. We take their money as they walk out the door. Exactly. It's making yeah. it hard for them to leave by charging them. Which is just so irrational because if you think about it, if you're like just a business, business-minded person, because really economics is business, right? And so a state should think economically like a business does. Do you want somebody mm-hmm. to come to your store and purchase something one time? Or would you like having repeat customers, which is better, repeat customers? Mm-hmm. So instead, right. they're like... Yeah, we really stink. Like we're a horrible business. <laughs> so we're gonna just try to get squeeze these people for all that we can, like the one time, because we know that's all we're gonna get out of them. And it's just like Illinois, right. you know, we had to redistrict uh uh we ha- had our election maps changed and redistricted and redrawn because our our state's hemorrhaging residents because nobody wants to live here. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. very interesting to <laughs> to talk through. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that said, we're going to talk about emotionalism with you today. This is something I had actually, uh, I, I love Shanda. She's a sounding board. She's a strong Christian woman with incredible knowledge of what the Bible says. And so, um, we're friends through Instagram and, you know, and I would say, even though we don't like see each other face to face, like real life friends at this point. Right. Right. And so, you have my phone number. I have yours. That, yes. That's yes. <laughs> yeah, we're there. So anyway, uh, we had had a conversation about this this past summer and it was so good. And I'm like, we need to talk about this on the podcast. It's a great topic. But just in talking about the South Carolina thing and you bringing up comfort, you know, and people responding to living in comfort, really that's emotionalism, right? You know, um, knowing rationally what the best thing is to do and then sticking with what's comfortable. That's that's a form of that. But anyway, so we're going to get in emotionalism. Can you just give us first some background? Like, why is this such an interesting topic to, to you? And then I know you uh, talk about growing up in the Pentecostal church. So can you give us some background on that? Sure. Yeah. So that growing up in a Pentecostal church has a lot to do with... Um, you know, why I like to talk about this so much because I feel like I can relate to it because I was there 
I was in that environment. And so for me, placing a heavy emphasis on feeling God meant, you know, that I knew him, if I could feel the presence of God and people might be like, well, how do you feel God? Well, that's the question, right? How do you feel the presence of God is a, is a question to ask when you're into the emotionalism type of thing. And so I feel like, you know, when I first, I was raised in church and when I was 17, I remember realizing I didn't love God. And it's so funny because I, I'm actually preparing a talk for a women's conference this weekend. And it's like the very first lesson I learned was that you have to, you have to, in order to love something, you have to know it. Like you can't love what you don't know. And mm -hmm. so the first prayer I remember praying that basically I lied to God when I was 17, I was walking through my high school campus and praying. And I remember ending that prayer, whatever it was about, because I don't remember what I prayed about that day. I just remembered the end of it. I said, I love you, God. Amen. And as soon as I said, I love you, like the question came back to my mind was, do you really love God? Or are you just saying that because it's the right thing to say? And it's like those movies where, you know, the, the, the person stands still or everything around that person stands still. And then they, they're the only ones who are aware of the moment. Mm -hmm. That was exactly what it feels like when I, when I think back to it and I was like, oh my gosh, like, I don't, I don't love God. But I, but I knew I still hadn't answered the question. I was thinking through the question. So in my mind, I was like, I don't love God, but what do I say to that? Like, do I admit that or do I just continue to go on as if I do? And so I decided like to be honest. And I said, Lord, I don't love you because I don't know you. And that really freaks me out because that means I, ha I don't have my own relationship with you, but help me to know you. And so even growing up in a Pentecostal church, the awareness of you can't love what you don't know was my very first lesson that I feel like began that whole relationship with me deciding to have a relationship with God instead of, you know, my parents telling me that I, that I should. But it doesn't mean that I didn't rely on emotions to kind of be my guide through that relationship. Mm -hmm. And then when I got into apologetics, starting to realize that God tells us the command is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, not just the heart. And the heart doesn't mean emotion, which is what I thought it meant. I thought, well, if I feel God, if I love God, if I'm pouring out my heart to God and these tears are streaming down my face, then my heart is in this. And that must mean I love God with all my heart. But what attracted me to apologetics and realizing that I was in the state of emotionalism was that I was forgetting, I was neglecting the mind. I was neglecting the fact that I needed to know uh, who who God was and who God is and, and to have that relationship with him. And so I connected that whole scripture with loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, that this is a whole person. This is all of me. This is me knowing God, loving God, and then living out uh, what I know about him. And so when I began to realize that, I started to realize that a lot of things that I was doing was more based on emotionalism than it was uh, knowledge. And so from there, I just started to study more and dive in deeper. And now I talk about it often because I think once you do make that, that realization and that connection, you start to, to see the head has to come first because everything that's filtered uh, through the mind will answer the heart, but it goes through the mind first. And as a teacher, I think that connection was also something that drew me in because you're transferring knowledge as a teacher. 
And so it was just this like hammer that came down and hit the nail on the head. And I was like, that's it. That's the missing piece to this relationship that I've been seeking with, with the Lord my whole life. Now, it doesn't mean I didn't have one. It just meant that it wasn't as deep as it could be because I had it a little bit backwards. Mm. Yeah. You do such a good job of talking through that and explaining it. And it really drew me in. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with young people over the years who have a lot of doubts over, over whether God even exists because they don't quote feel him. Right. And if they can't feel him, then it must not be real. Um, and also people who want to believe people who even attend church and are really searching and want to believe, but haven't had that experience that makes them feel God on that emotional level. And, you know, you try to explain to them that there's more to it than what you feel, but it's, it's a hard thing to do. So I'm really looking forward to direct people to this episode. I've directed them to your podcast in the past for stuff like this as well. But what do you think, like, what's a good thing to say to like a, a youth that is like, well, is God real? Because I can't feel him. Every religion has an experience, mm. but that doesn't mean they're true because all religions have some fundamental conflict, right? They, they disagree, fundamental mm -hmm. disagreement. So you'd have to say, okay, well, if you say, oh, I tried Buddhism because it works for me, that means I've experienced what Buddhism has to offer, but mm. is Buddhism true? We, we don't want to go down the feeling path. We want to go down what's true. Yes. Yeah. So that's what first we, we, what are we going to experience if we first don't know whether or not that that thing is true? Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of people who try things and gain an experience from it. But again, okay, it offers an experience, but you have to have truth, the truth of that, you know, Christianity and the experience comes with it. I, I feel like the experience is the relational part with who God is when you're walking throughout your day and you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, because that also is an experience that also is, is part of the emotional aspect of, oh my gosh, I, that's wrong. I'm discerning that that's wrong because God is, is helping me discern right and wrong, which tr truth from error mm -hmm. that is an experience. But if I don't know God in his word, if I don't have that knowledge of God and have a relationship with God, I won't experience that mm -hmm. discernment, that, that experience in that moment of what is right and wrong. Um, so sometimes we think, oh, I have to go down and feel this goosebumps. That was a lot of my experience growing up in the Pentecostal church. Um, we would go down to the altars. We'd be praying, everyone's hugging. But you have to remember what, what Paul told Timothy. The Bible is purposeful because it, you know, it, um, I have to remember the exact wording if he said it, but it, it basically it exhorts teaches, instructs, admonishes, and encourages. So it, it does all those things. If the word of God is not spoken into that person's life, then the experience won't really come because mm -hmm. it's the word of God, the truth of the word of God that resonates. Now, remember this as well, Cecily, we can have all of these kids in front of us and we can be like, man, I hope that they have this heart change, right? Mm -hmm. But of course, what happens in the mind isn't enough. Because Romans 10, 9 says belief takes place in the heart. 
So first it has to be presented and it gets filtered through here. We, we present to them the knowledge of who God is. And that's why I think apologetics is good for kids because you're not just telling them what Christianity is. You're telling them why Christianity is a reasonable faith to put their trust in mm -hmm. and differs from all other religions because kids today in this, this culture that is driven by emotions that says, what do you feel? What do you feel like being today? What do you want me to, how do you identify today? And they're letting the, the person decide their own truth. They're not telling them what's true. God forbid you do that in a postmodern era, right? Mm -hmm. and so these kids are like, I want to know what truth is. I want to know what's real. I want to know what's worth putting my trust in. And if you're going to leave it up to me to decide, it just brings confusion. They need guidance on that. And so when you tell a, a kid, this is why we believe, this is the evidence that points to uh, the existence of God, then that's why kids can say, okay, that's worth exploring. That's worth finding out about. And then that's why you, you know, you're not going to have that experience until you first are introduced to the truth of why you should have that experience. And hopefully Romans 10, 9 will come to pass and belief will take place in their heart. Yeah, no, you're right. Apologetics is so important for kids. This is something that Rita and I both heavily agree on. Um, and my oldest son actually went through your apologetics course, which was excellent. And I think you guys are starting it again soon, right? We actually already started it. Mm -hmm. Oh, did you already so start? I'm always so behind. <laughs> Well, time goes by fast, like Rita said, and I amen yeah. to that because I'm like, what year are we in? We're already in the middle of, at the end of February of 2023. How, how insane. is that? <laughs> <laughs> Good news is starting a logic course, an introduction to logic for middle schoolers in the Ooh, fall. Interesting. Okay. How to discern truth and really learn yeah. how to think and not be told what to think. So that's coming up too. But yeah, um, apologetics is where... It's, it's like the new evangelism tool of 2023 because people are wanting to know what's real, what's true. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I hope people are wanting to know what's true and real. <laughs> yeah. Well, there Sometimes are some out there and there are some who want to determine their own truth. And when that yes. fails, they'll look us up, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. Right. I think well, there's always a hole, like, right? There's a hole that needs to be filled with truth. And yeah. people might think that they're pursuing truth, right? When they're actually pursuing a false reality. Um, mm -hmm. But I think if you're pursuing a false reality, that hunger and that hole, that like truth-shaped hole is not going to be filled, right? right? So I do believe that people will turn towards the truth eventually because that yeah. hole can't be filled otherwise. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, apologetics and logic go so great together. That's that's actually what my daughter's co-op is doing, which Shanda, you spoke at their co-op. You guest spoke yeah. uh, through Zoom and things. And it was so good. My daughter afterwards was like, I can't remember. I wish I could remember the exact word she said to tell you because it was so funny. But she she basically said, man, that girl knows her stuff. And <laughs> so great. <laughs> it's funny for a 12-year-old to say that, you know? It was I'll something to that, that effect. I can't but, remember what she said too, because I... Yeah, it was good. It was good. It was like the... It was the month my phone was broken, so I couldn't tell you right away, but I wish I could have. Um, but anyway, they're doing logics, logic and apologetics together, and it's just... It really complements each other well. So that's great that you're starting that. Um Speaking of, you know, reality and people searching for reality and what's true, 
Cecily had pointed out a while back that like each year of our podcast, it seems like that there's like an underlying theme that either the we bring up during the podcast or our guest brings up. And this year it's truth corresponds with reality. It's every episode. It's just, it happens. It happens. It's just the theme. And so you have said emotions are not a guide to reality, but a response to it, which I think that's profound and absolutely true. Um, And I believe that this applies when we're talking about faith and Christianity, but also just culture broadly, that, that, that um, statement itself can really explain most of what we're seeing culturally, really. So Mm -hmm. can you further dive into that statement and give us just a little more insight into what you mean there? Yeah. So we, you know, I I think I just mentioned a a few, few minutes ago about there are several worldviews and I've been studying the American worldview inventory by George Barna and he breaks down basically where, where we are as a culture and culturally we use our emotions to guide reality. And that comes from postmodernism, which basically says, you know, you can't know anything for sure. So people who are, who are locked into this, uh, you know, they're still searching. They're in wonder. They're, you know, you can't tell someone that they're wrong if they don't believe the same way as you. You all, all faiths are equally valid. As long as they believe something, shouldn't we be happy with that? Um, and again, it's like, do you love the truth? Because we all, we all know if you study different religions, again, they all can't be equally valid because they contradict each other. So according to the law, basic law of logic, the law of non-contradiction, it's either true or it's false. (laughs) So, you know, it can't, something, Christianity and Buddhism cannot be both be true and equally valid. And so if you really want to, and and believing in something that's false is dangerous, but Mm -hmm. when you use your emotions to guide you towards what you would say is truth, you're only going to move towards what feels good. And we all know that the truth also hurts. When someone comes and delivers a message like maybe grandpa passed away last night in his sleep, that is the truth and it doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. We all know too that fire burns and if I touch it, it's going to hurt me. That is the truth and it doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. And so there are things that we need to identify with truth and be able to say, I shouldn't be afraid of it. We should love it because it'll tell me what to stay away from. And it also guides me into what matches reality so I can live the truth because believing in lies has consequences. And, you know, we have to, even with kids who are, and not just kids, adults who are uh, contemplating, does God exist? Is the God of the Bible, the God worth believing in? What we have to ask ourselves is this life isn't the only life that we're living. So what about eternity? Like, doesn't what I believe and how I live now affect the rest of what what happens beyond this point, beyond this physical life? Because if the atheist is right, naturalism is true, and we all just turn to dust when we die. And, you know, if uh, if Hinduism is true, then I'm going to turn into, I don't know, maybe a caterpillar, maybe a horse, maybe I'll come back as a, another human being. I don't really know that cycle will continue, right? But is that true? Because those things have consequences. How we, what we believe today uh, affects the rest of our lives, how we live today and, and eternity. So 
we can't just say whatever feels good to you, do that thing. Because um, you can say that about people who abort their babies. You can say that about Adolf Hitler, who thought mm-hmm. it felt really good to, to uh, gas millions of people because they didn't fit his description of uh, what, you know, personhood or what humans should be. So these, these things that we're promoting in, in our culture have dire consequences. And we're talking about now in 2023, I was just thinking how I have a seventh grader when he started kindergarten seven years ago, never in, crossed my mind that he could possibly be told or encouraged or kept from me if he went to a public school, if he wanted to transition to, you know, female or opposite gender or whatever. But now that's, that's what we're ta- telling our kids. We're telling them that that's okay and that that's true. And we're giving them these hormone blockers that after 10 years can cause cancer or have all of these lasting effects where they're never going to be able to have kids themselves. These things have consequences. And, you know, and we have to remember that your emotions will change. A lot of these, these kids are going through identity crisis and these emotional, um, I don't want to say phases because I don't think it's necessarily a phase. I think they're trying to find out themselves what's true mm-hmm. and is what I is what the culture is promoting so I can fit in. Is this something that I want to want to try out? And the adults in their lives who are just saying, oh, if we don't do this, they'll kill themselves. That's another emotional pull. That's a, an emotional pull on the, on the heart of the parents to say, do this for your kids because you could be hurting if you don't. Mm-hmm. And it's like, again, you're t- telling them to touch fire. They're going to get burned. And in this case, it's going to be even worse than that. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's always kind of like that thing. I, I think I've seen it and I don't know if I know the exact quote. It's kind of like, whatever bothers you today will continue to bother. I don't know. You guys probably don't even know what I'm, gonna, I'm talking about. I'm trying to gather my thoughts. Basically, it's like this. It's either going to hurt today, so do the workout and get better, or it's going to hurt mm-hmm. tomorrow step on the scale because you didn't do anything about it. Right. If you tell your kid, no, that's not true. This is the reality. God made you who you are and you are exactly who you're supposed to be. And God will take you and continue to make you uh, who he sees that you can be as you grow up, it's either, that's either going to hurt them in the moment, but continue to help grow them towards something that good, right, and true, or it's going to hurt years down the road, but it's going to be worse off because you didn't tell them the truth that hurt today. Absolutely. That's right. I mean, Absolutely. it's just that concept, right? Of like, it's never loving to allow someone to continue walking down the path of lies. That's not a loving thing to do. Um, but you're right. It is um, emotions are being used as a weapon, both for children and for adults and parents. I know so many adults who are basically going along with a lot of lies because of the fact that emotionalism is being used against them. You aren't mm-hmm. loving if you don't allow this. You, whatever you know, like it's it's a it's a weapon. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. And it's easy to do because again, we're in that culture that people, why are people afraid to speak the truth? Because they don't want to offend. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't want to offend and they also want to be careful because of the backlash they're going to get, which is going to put them into an uncomfortable situation. Yeah. Yeah. They're afraid of self, you know, sacrificing their self or, you know, self-preservation, really. People are into self-preservation over, you know, telling the truth and doing what's right. And 
This is a really silly, small example, but I think that it has to get silly and small because we talk about big things and it's easy to see why the truth is so important on big things, but it's always important. And I was thinking back to 2020, we went to a wedding and it was a a buffet food line and everybody gets up and they put out gloves. They wanted you to put on plastic gloves, like, or the latex gloves, whatever, to get your food through a buffet line. Like you put these gloves on and held your plate with your hands. Like you put the gloves on and then you touch the utensils with the gloves that were touched by your hands. And my kids right. got up there and they said, do we have to wear these? Cause they knew, like they know me well enough that I'm thinking like, this is dumb. And I said, no. And they looked at me, I said, cause it's stupid. And we don't do stupid things. Like, no, we're not doing this. And the thing is, I know this is a really small example, but when we're intellectually irresponsible on the little things, it leads to laziness on the big things, right? And so I think it's really, really important always in all things not to sacrifice the truth because it's either true or not. Like you said, it's either true that this is helping someone to put these gloves on or it's not. And it's, it was not helpful. It was not a helpful thing. So we're not going to participate in that because putting those on was truly an emotional response for people just to make people feel like we were doing something. And that, right. you know, those little tiny things that people participate in lead to telling your kids it's okay to sacrifice, you know, truth if it's going to keep somebody else comfortable. Yes. Mm. Exactly. And just like all this stuff's coming out now with, you know, all the COVID stuff, like you're finally hearing the truth about it that everyone's known for two years. How long is it going to take for all these other big issues that we've been Mm -hmm. talking about before they start coming out with that? And then what are are we going to say? Oops, sorry, guys. You know, we just ruined several kids' lives, many millions of kids' lives. Yeah. All in the name of what? I mean, there's no oops on this. You know, there, there isn't any. And I, I always say like parents are one. Yeah, sure. We should be standing in front of our kids and saying, you will get through, you will have to go through me to get to my kids. Like, I think every parent that is watching out for their kid is willing to put themselves on that front line. But any adult with a mouth and some common sense should also also open it up and be speaking out against this. Like we should not be passive when it comes to the truth. Because again, denying truth has consequences and the world is not passive. The world is not neutral. The world is actively, and by the world, what do we mean by that, right? We need, we mean anyone who doesn't love the truth, anyone who's trying to promote these lies and go with the sway of culture by buttering it up and making it sound good and loving and putting those kinds of words on it. That's, that's, the, that's what I mean by buttering it up. Mm-hmm. You, you got to be able to say, am I going to make, you know, Sally over across the way feel really good when I put these gloves on? Like you said, Rita, even though it's the stupidest thing, like Sally should be using her brain to know that I just touch these things with whatever, you know, with my hands. But no, Sally should know or Sally's going to get told, you know, because we are all going to this line together why I'm not wearing this. And I think that that's how it should be today. We will not promote these things. We are going to stand in front of these kids. We're going to speak the truth. And if that hurts, that's okay because yeah. it does hurt sometimes, you know. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I think some of these things because it frustrates me, you know, it frustrates oh, yeah. me. We're talking about irreversible, just like the book, you know, Irreversible Damage. It's mm-hmm. irreversible, some of these things. It absolutely is. And I think the trap that a lot of Christians in particular fall into is that 
it's the grace and truth thing, right? How can you speak the truth with grace? And a lot of the time, it seems to be that people think it absolutely has to be one or the other because Mm -hmm. of the fact that truth can hurt. Mm -hmm. And even if truth is said in a way that is kind and graceful, it doesn't feel like grace because the truth can hurt. And so then we're left with this thought of like, well, you're not speaking the truth with grace because that still hurt. Um, you know what I mean? And I, I really think this is a big issue that we're seeing in the church today. Yeah, I think you have to be, you know, there are times when I think, okay, that comes off strong because mm-hmm. you can be passionate about something. So yeah, it can come off strong. Um and, but it's like asking yourself, am I speaking the truth just to be right? Because I know I'm right on it. Yeah. Am I speaking the truth because there is more at risk here, not for me, but for, mm-hmm. for the reason why I'm speaking it. Yeah. And I think when we're talking about the transgender issue, that's an easy one. We're talking mm-hmm. about who, who's affected by this. It's all, it's all the kids. It's all children. We're talking about children under the age of 18. We're talking mm-hmm. about... I don't know of one adult that anybody's saying, hey, this is wrong for that 45-year-old. Mm. The 45-year-old's 45. If they make that decision at 45, they're making it with a fully developed brain. And sure, they might need some you know, counseling if it's a true gender dysphoria, but that's another issue, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about kids who don't have fully developed brains till they're 25 years old. So if you want to err on the side of something, err on the side of speaking truth strongly, in that situation, rather than being, well, should I say this? Yes, the Bible is clear. God made them male and female. And the we need to be lovers of the truth and lovers of the truth will speak it because it's the right thing to do and because you love the people that it will affect if you don't. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I Like I said earlier, I think it's always, it's the loving thing to do is to shepherd people towards God's design for humanity, right? That is ultimately the most loving thing that we can do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. While we're on this topic, this isn't where I thought we'd go, but I do want to pick your brain on this a little bit. So I, I don't know. I've just been struggling a little bit with the noise of it all. Mm. You know, it's very, very noisy out there. And sometimes it feels like people are, quote unquote, speaking the truth and pointing out evil. But are we doing it? to truly speak the truth and point out evil? Are we doing it because we know it's now the popular thing to do um, in some circles, you know, and has personal gain attached to it? And also, I guess, tagging on to that a little bit, if we're only pointing out evil and we're not talking about good at all, how do you know what evil is if you don't know what good is? Right. That's a good point. Yeah, you, we only know what evil is because we know what good is, according yes. to the moral argument, right? So I think that that's a great point. There's a couple of things that come to my mind, Rita, that I keep watching. It's like, it's funny because it's almost like when I think about it, I, I think about how many times I go through and see different yes. things. Yes, yeah. It's like a visual, right? <laughs> it is. And then as I'm picturing it, I'm just like, my mind is just, just snapshotting all yes. of the things. One of them is on the Asbury revival that I've seen. And one of them is on the He Gets Us campaign. I've seen a lot of different talk about those two things, whereas I will not jump in and talk about those things. Amen to that. Yeah, yeah. because I'm like, for for one, I haven't been to Asbury. So yes. I have an objective 
review opinion. So I won't. My best thing that I would say to that is in Acts when, you know, the disciples were getting ready to, they were, they were preaching. I think it was early chapters of Acts. I can't remember the exact chapter and verse, but anyways, the religious leaders got together and they were like, what do we do with these men? Basically, do we imprison them? Do we beat them? What do we do? And one man stood up and he said he was in a position of leadership. And he said, look, if this is from God, no one's going to stop it. That's right. If it's not from God, then it's going to be stopped. It's going to fizzle out to nothing. That's my response. Mm-hmm. As Yes, I totally see, agree. We'll see in time, right? And you mm-hmm. know what? Maybe not everyone was there for the good intentions. Maybe they came to see and to be a part of what they heard. But maybe some were. I believe that there probably were out of all the people that went, 50,000 or so. So that's my take on it. If it's truly from God, no one's going to stop it and we're going to see results of it. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there is a lot of noise and sometimes we need to know when to back off and not nitpick every little thing mm-hmm. and say, maybe it's not all bad. Maybe it's not all good. Maybe there's going to be good and bad to it. But you know what? God only knows that because we're not always going to know the ins and outs of every situation and that's okay. And I think in a culture that has to respond like that, like we've been trained to respond. Look what happened after the George Floyd thing with BLM. Mm-hmm. Uh, is anybody, what are you guys going to say about it? I saw some people saying, I'm not going to speak on this right now. I don't know enough about it, but that was rare. That was mm-hmm. so rare. And I admired those people who did, but everybody else was being either called to speak or just speaking so quickly. And it's okay to gather your thoughts because even Proverbs yes. tells us, Proverbs tells us, that a fool is found in many words. The Bible doesn't encourage speaking first. The Bible encourages speaking uh, cautiously and carefully and being being careful to align it to truth. So yeah, I think we need to be very discerning even about when we speak and when we're critical and calling things out because we just may not know because we may not have all the facts and that's okay. Yeah, I've been asked actually by people what I think about Asbury and I give almost the exact response that you give. It's just, you know, sometimes it's best not to say anything because like you said, wasn't there, yeah. can't speak on it. And that, that Bible, uh, story, sorry, I'm thinking I can't use the right words here that you brought up. That's a, that's a really exact example. If it's of God, nothing can stop it. Um, so true. But yeah, there, there is a lot, actually, I think the last time you were on, we talked to you about that, right? When to speak, when not to speak. That was actually the topic. That was the topic. Just as I had forgotten about that. I just knew that you'd been on. Um, But as we were talking, I'm like, yeah, I feel like we've been here before. And yeah, it's an always applicable topic, apparently. Sure. Well, Acts 5 is the, is the reference for, if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So, yeah. Yeah. The funny thing is you brought up that he gets us and <laughs> I do have a lot of thoughts on that, but I'm not talking about it now because everybody else is. And so yeah. there's no point, but it's funny. I had actually sent that to Cecily. I don't know. Well, before there was any Super Bowl ca- campaign, I'm like, look at this. This is a political agenda disguised as getting people to Jesus. And anybody should be able to see through that. I was very surprised to see people talking about it. And then the comments in the comment section where people are just like, think it's, they can't see the political agenda behind it. But anyway, that that's my two cents on it. Well, I'll be excited to hear what you guys have to say when it comes time. I don't know. I probably won't talk about it now because it's just, nobody cares. It's just, you know, putting, throwing a penny in the wishing well, you know, at this point yeah. that's yeah. already full. 
There's no point. Our sponsor for this episode is Pretty Little Light Candle Co. This company is owned by Lauren, who has become a friend of ours. She actually was kind enough to send Rita a birthday present from me that had like special requests in it. So Lauren is such a great person. And this is not just a small business and a family business, but also a ministry. They base their business off of Matthew 5, 16, which says, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. And I love that. I also love that this is a business that she started with her daughter just in a homeschool project. As a homeschool mom myself, I can really relate to that. And I think it's something that that's just really cool. But what we also love about her company is that her candles are clean. And if you know anything about Rita and me, it's that we're very, very picky about the things we put on our bodies and use in our homes. Um, And this company has ticked the boxes. And not only that, but she has helped to educate us on why these candles are healthy. Um, We assumed that candles should be burnt with essential oils only as fragrance. And she taught us why that's actually not safe and not good. And the fragrances that they use are phthalate free, totally safe and um, totally clean burning. So check out Pretty Little Light Candle Co. Use the code BOOMCLAP and save yourself 20% off your order. Okay, so we're going to move on to just emotionalism and culture and then emotionalism in the church in general. We'll just spend a second on the culture. I just wanted to bring in, you know, how similar, you know, we can talk about emotionalism as a whole and apply it just to the church, but it's just really, it's happening throughout culture. That is, that is how we operate now as a whole. And so I was just thinking about emotionalism and media bias. So I'm just going to talk just a second here and then we'll get to emotionalism in the church. But emotionalism and sensationalism, I was reading uh, through the ways media promotes to us. And this is something that I uh, found. But sensationalism is a type of media bias in which information is presented in a way that gives shock or makes a deep impression. It often gives readers a false sense of culmination that all previous reporting has led to this ultimate story. And they give examples like when words are used in media, like shocking, remarkable, chaotic, lashed out, scathing, explosive. Like all of these are emotional words that are used in media all the time. Mm -hmm. And when you think about all the things happening in culture, these words are often used in the headlines to get us to have an emotional response to Uh, feel a certain way about whatever the narrative point that they want to drive home is. And so I don't know if there's anything you want to add there, Shanda, you can. Otherwise, we'll just move into uh, emotionalism in the church because it's really the same thing just Mm -hmm. played out in the church. Well, that's that's what I was going to say. Like, There's a worldview that's a fairly new worldview that's kind of come on the scene in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. And it's called moralistic therapeutic deism. Mm -hmm. So you have 65% of Americans that claim to be Christian. And then you only have 6% with a biblical worldview, which means that they think biblically Mm -hmm. and live biblically. So then you're you're like, well, what does the other 59% have? And 75% of those who claim to be Christians out of the 65%. So you look at the 65% as a whole, because I know sometimes that People are like, what? You know, when you're like saying all these different statistics. Um, 75% believe in moralistic therapeutic deism. 
but 90 something percent, what's that exact? I think it's 90 percent exactly of the American population believes along the lines of moralist therapeutic deism, which God exists somewhere out there, but he's not personally connected to me. And my number one goal of life is to be happy. And they're the ones who are, they believe in karma. They, they believe that the, the life itself is just a happiness quest. So when you say, okay, this is culture, but it's also the church. Yeah, the church doesn't look much different than the culture. So when you have uh, anything like advertisements and the news stories and what I would say is basically clickbait. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Clickbaiting the emotional side of the person. They're drawing in with an emotional aspect like, oh, what can I see? That's why, you know, gossip it's, it's no different than gossip. It draws you in because you want to know that juicy thing, that juicy story, but you're appealing to what the culture wants, what the culture loves. And that that's, like I said, 90% of the population, yet 75% of the church. That is not a big difference at all who believes that happiness is the goal. And when you say happiness is the goal, you're talking about an emotionally driven people. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about the church not being that much different than culture as a yeah. whole. That's really sad. It's very sad. <laughs> if you got into the weeds of these statistics with the different worldviews, yeah, surprise. Because the thing is, what's fascinating about the worldview is that when, when people actually put Marxism, postmodernism, uh-huh. moralistic therapeutic deism, are you these? Oh, absolutely not. We don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. What are you? I'm a Christian, 65%. But okay, tell me all these things that you believe. When they say how they believe, what they think, how they live, it aligns 10%. I think it's maybe less than 10% is Marxism. There's more Marxists than what they're claiming. There's mm-hmm. more postmodernists than what they're, th- what they're claiming. Yeah. They claim one thing, but they actually live and believe and speak another thing. And so that's why they're claiming to be Christians, but they don't even know what Christianity is. So now we're going back to knowledge means a whole lot more than what you feel. Because you have to know what you believe in order to to live out that belief. Absolutely. And that goes with everything. That goes with everything. But I think this is why on episodes like this, where it is, you know, more Christian-based, I think it's so important to draw these cultural connections. Because mm-hmm. I do think there are a lot of Christians that want to live rightly or as they, as they say they value, right? They want to live what they say they value. But I think sometimes it's so confusing unless you draw those cultural connections and make the points like you just made, you know, about uh, the worldviews. So, well, anyway. we can't, you know, the thing is you have to put, you have to put the responsibility where it lies and it lies in the lap of the church because the yeah. church is not making disciples. Jesus didn't tell us to go and make people feel good. He didn't tell us to go and counsel people. He didn't tell us to do any of that. He said, go and make disciples. Mm-hmm. And so the discipleship aspect is the reason. A biblical worldview is, is the way that you get to that is biblical literacy. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So some of the things that you mentioned when you've talked about emotionalism that— uh I guess, that you qualify as emotionalism. One of them is dependency on emotions to gauge success of a service or your relationship with God, which you talked about a little bit already. If you have anything else to say on that, go for it. Well, you know, just if you look up even the definition of emotionalism, it's just placing emphasis on your emotions to guide truth. So whenever you do that, that's, that's when you're 
be, that's when you're relying on emotions. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this one, I, I think we could stay here and talk for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you say intellectually challenging message versus speaking to your need or problem. So people don't want that intellectually challenging message. They want their need spoken into, their problem spoken into. They want to feel seen. And I think this this is a whole big can of worms we could get into here. Yeah, it can go deep for sure. Um, I think to simplify it a little bit, you know, I don't know if this, this is kind of a new term, meology. It's, it's a play on words, me and the study of myself. You know, mm-hmm. we sometimes we think, I'm going to, you know, go into my Bible study. Studying the Bible is theology, the study of God, to know God. But when you go into your Bible study, a lot of times Christians, especially in women's ministries, I've talked about this, it's more meology. How is God going to speak to me today? How is he going to meet my need or solve my problem? What insight am I going to draw about how to live life better? We look at behavior modification when we look at Bible study. That's not the goal of Bible study. And then some might say, well, then how do you expect me to ever grow? If I'm only looking at my Bible study to learn about God, what do I, what do I get out of it? I guess you can say, right? Well, I, I love the example of Isaiah 6. Isaiah is in the temple and he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And Isaiah suddenly realizes he's a man of unclean lips. Mm-hmm. He says, I'm undone, Lord. I'm unclean. I've seen you. And then they bring the coal and touches touches lips, which means he, he's cleansed, right? So the point is when you see God, you see yourself in light of God and we realize our need for him. And then you realize this is who I am. This is who he is. And that's where that relationship's there, which is what you can also call the experience that you have with God. And then we see ourselves and see our need and how we need to grow into who he wants us to be, to become more like him. And so it's a it's that relational aspect, but you'll never see that if we're only looking to see self and we're not looking to see God. And so meology in the church, it's so heavily infiltrated it into it because it's all those topical Bible studies of, you know, um, changing your mind, getting healing for yourself, chasing your dreams, fulfilling the goals that God has for you in your life. And where's the emphasis placed on who God is how to know him so that way we become more like him. And so that's that's what I mean when I, I talk about those two distinct, distinctions. Because a lot of times Jesus, if you look at Mark, I'm studying the book of Mark. Right now I studied half of it in January and half of it in February. And I just loop eight through 16 in February. But if you look even through one through six, you're going to see a pattern of what Jesus told the students because he was the teacher, right? He always says, be careful how you hear. And then he gives a parable to the sower. So he says, be careful how you hear because how you hear determines how you receive and how you receive determines how you respond. So when we go to the Lord, we have to be careful how how we hear. We have to be intentional students of the word. And a lot of times we go to church and we say, all right, is the pastor going to be charismatic enough? He's going to, is he going (laughs) to... me? Is he going to lay down the message in a way that I can understand it? And we're so easy to critique him when we leave. But the real question is, were you careful how you heard? And what does God, what is God trying to say through that message? And so I always used to think remembering my position as a teacher is very important for me to 
to say teaching kids is a responsibility. That's on me. Like if they don't learn, what am I doing wrong? But then I also realized this is a two person. <laughs> this is a mm-hmm. two way street here. And I remember telling my kids, look, it's my, my job to teach you. If you don't get it, you need to come and tell me. But if I see that you're not paying attention or you're messing around cl- in class, that's on you. I already taught it. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. where, that's where the student needs to remember, oh, I have to be involved here. This isn't just, I'm not a passive learner. I'm an active learner. And I really feel like that needs to be communicated to the church more because that's mm-hmm. what discipleship is. You can't make disciples if, you, if your disciples don't want to be discipled. So mm-hmm. there has to be a desire for truth there. Again, it comes back to the desire for knowledge and truth and training yourself as a student to know this is going to take me being intentional and diligent to capture what it is the word is teaching me. So it's that I, I, I think as a teacher, the teacher needs to communicate that to the student that you're not a passive learner. Mm-hmm. The people in those pews, those seats at church, they're not supposed to be passive taking it all in. They are actively engaged. They're there not for for you. They're there to listen to what God has to say and to be careful listeners. Otherwise, you have to ask yourself, do I have a meology mindset or a theology mindset? It's really only one of the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's really well said. And I think the natural tendency for us in our brokenness is to have a meology mindset, right? Yeah. And it takes effort to switch that to a theology minded mindset. Um, And that plays into also like the first part of that. It was intellectually challenging messages versus speaking to a person's need or problem. Well, because we have this natural instinct towards meology and we like things to be easy, this kind of goes along with the Google culture that we experience too, right? We want our answers quick while we want our problems solved quick. We don't want to have to be intellectually challenged mm-hmm. um, to get to the root of an issue, right? I think that's like a really big problem that we're experiencing nowadays because we're so used to that comfort trap, like you mentioned earlier. It feels extremely unnatural to have to work for something, whether it's on a physical level or an intellectual level. Yeah, for sure. We, we're, if you also look at social media and these little bite-sized pieces of information, people mm-hmm. can't, they want to keep scrolling. So if you don't capture them within the first few seconds, they're gone. And the algorithm is going to be like, oh, nobody wants to see what you have to say. So people yeah. fall prey to oh, I better make this, uh, you know, I'll turn into this dancing monkey real quick. So <laughs> what I have to say, and it's like, yeah. I won't resort to it. My page is not going to look like that. You Absolutely. know, come to me and and listen in for something that's going to at least challenge a mm-hmm. uh, way of thinking or, you know, so promote some sort of truth or mm-hmm. you're, you're not going to get entertainment from me. And I think that that's what we also have to ask ourselves as disciples. I've talked about this on my own podcast um, you know, when you look at people who just give you the fluffy stuff, it's the same thing as a workout. If my workout doesn't challenge me, I'm not going to grow the muscle. I'm not going to grow the, the lung capacity. It's not going to make me fitter or better. So if people are only giving me the fluffy stuff, you're not being discipled. It's not challenging you. And if that's what you want, then that's how you're going to see that reflection in, in everyday life. And that's, that's just, you get out of it what is what you put into it and what you're able to endure. And um, 
And I think by the grace of God, we start off small, right? And then we start off with that pure milk of the gospel, and then we are able to grow. But Paul also says, by now you should be teachers. There is a growing process that God expects from us, and He expects us to grow in that way in discipleship. Yeah. Yeah. Really, it just shows that Christians are no different than anyone else. They have to work to be set apart from culture. Like, do we really want to be set across? A set apart from culture. And I think rejection of intellectually challenging messages, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's just, that's destroying our ability to communicate and understand any issues. And like you said, it's, we gotta be, we, Cecily and I've talked about this so many times lately. We have to be conscious creators and conscious mm-hmm. consumers, both sides, both sure. sides, because everybody's feeding into this and everybody's feeding into the rejection of intellectual challenging mm-hmm. conversation and content. So, well, and it's uh, the same thing as leading someone away from truth, right? Yeah. By yeah. doing these things and following that path, we're leading them away from truth, which ultimately is going to lead them down the wrong path. Yes. Yeah. So the last thing you say regarding emotionalism, the church that I wanted to touch on is just emotionalist state consumers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do. And when you when you think about it, like I know when I'm being passive. I think we all know when we're being passive consumers. It's just you're watching your YouTube or you're watching scroll, scrolling through your social media, something to that uh, that effect. But we're not supposed to be that way when it comes to acquiring knowledge. And if you're an emotionalist and you're being passive, you're not acquiring knowledge, which means you're not growing. And so I don't. I I don't know what it is. I think, again, if we're relating this to church, I think the misconception is because we come and we sit and somebody else does the talking that we can just sit and consume. But when you think about it, that is supposed to grow me. It's supposed to go in and I'm supposed to do something with it, Mm -hmm. right? It goes in through the mind first. And I think I did a reel on this last week where I said the first place we reject or accept something is in the mind but belief does take place in the heart. So it has to be something that we mull over and we think about, and it has to challenge us in order for it to, for it to grow us. And then once you have, have received the word, because you remember Jesus said, be careful, careful how you hear, because how you hear determines how you will receive it and how re- you re- will receive it determines how you respond. What's the response? It's you now becoming the producer because you're bearing fruit. That's the whole point of the parable. And Jesus says, those people who received the word, it fell on good ground, were able to produce the crops that yielded 50 and 100 times, um, you know, it's, it's, it's fold or something to that effect. Again, I'm not, I'm butchering the scripture, but you guys feel me. So it's like you, if you're only a consumer, but what are you can really consuming? Because when we, we consume things in real life, like food, it's for energy, right? It's for output is for us to be able to continue to go and move and take care of business throughout the house or our families or whatever. So if you're really a consumer only, what are you doing with what you're consuming? It's mm-hmm. not doing anything. It's just really going in and never growing you to, for, to where you become a producer. So it's, it's almost like malnourishment when mm-hmm. you think of it. And a lot of things in the spiritual parallel the physical. We talk about how you know, Jesus says that the word of God is bread. It's it's like a lamp. It's it's a light to our feet, a lamp to our feet, and a light to our path. There's a lot of things that 
we see are that are paralleled to the spirit. If we could look at the spiritual man in the mirror, would we look malnourished because of what we're consuming and feasting on? Because if we would look, if we do look malnourished, we're going to know right away, there's no way we can be a producer. There's no way we can give because only disciples can make disciples. I can only teach what I know. I can only pass on what I have acquired myself. And so if the church's growth overall is being stunted, that's because the members within it, growth is being stunted as well. And so if we stay in that state of emotionalism, we will never, ever be able to make, uh, we'll never grow stronger or make disciples because it's impossible, just like it's impossible in real life to do that with, you know, cookies every day. Yeah, no. So Rita and I have done a lot of recording lately. And so I'm not even sure what conversation this particular phrase was a part of, but we were talking about something and then... Rita said, if you change your appetite, you change what you consume. And I think that really applies to this as well. You know, like people have an appetite for emotionalism. It's, it's what we're told yeah. we need and want, right? But if we can change our appetite, it'll change not only what we consume, but how we consume as well. And speaking about consumerism in the church, I mean, obviously this is a, a rampant problem. And I once heard someone say, I can't remember who it was, but he was talking about why he had a problem with church being called the building that you go to on Sunday, right? Because really what church is, is it's the people, it's the body of Christ, right? And when we go to quote church, that's really where we just meet. That's where the church meets, but it's not church. And I think that that can really play into the uh, consumeristic attitude as well. Because if you think that church is a place that you just go to once a week, Mm -hmm. it is really easy to consume. But when you, when you change the way that you think about it and realize that, no, you are the church, you, me, all the people that are part of the body of Christ, we are the church. It makes it really difficult to just be a consumer at that point, because it's not a destination. It's your life, right? Well, again, you have to look at this as this is a, an effect of an of a greater cause that our whole culture is, right? Mm-hmm. And even where the church is, capital C church as a whole in the West, I would say. Mm-hmm. The problem is we're not giving them anything else to chew on. Right. The reason we're here is because biblical literacy is a path to a biblical worldview. And so if the word of God is bread and they're not getting the bread of life, they're not getting mm-hmm. the word of God and they're not able to chew on that every day, then they are malnourished. And mm-hmm. so I think that sometimes you don't know what you like because you haven't tasted it before. I mean, I know that because yeah. I'm like, I don't like it. And my husband, my husband's introduced me to so many foods since we've gotten married. <laughs> I like so many foods now, you know, because of him. Um, mm-hmm. But I would just say I don't like something, even though I I never tasted it just because I thought I wouldn't like it. Sometimes mm-hmm. you don't know what you're missing until you've been given it. And then people True. can say, oh my gosh, like, why haven't I learned this? Even with mm-hmm. apologetics, you know how many times Christians come to online Christian courses to learn a new course and they say, I, I cannot count how many times I've seen this. Why don't they teach this at my church? Why haven't I been learning this? And that's because they haven't been exposed to some of the instruction that, mm-hmm they're being provided. And so I think it goes both ways. I think sometimes people just, I I love, I love feeling good. Happiness is my goal. Okay. But I think there are a lot of people out there who just haven't tasted and seen that the Lord is good yet, because even if they're walking into church, because they haven't been presented the goodness of the word in the way that it's supposed to be. And then also communicated by what's my responsibility to be careful how I hear so I can receive it 
and respond to it and produce that fruit that God is is requiring. God requires that of us. That is not an ask. These things mm-hmm. are that we grow, but it, it's just, it's all connected. And we need to know where the problem starts. It starts with the leadership at the church. Absolutely. Yeah. Well said. Yep. Yep. Agree with that. Okay. Last thing, Shanda, we've kept you longer than intended, probably because we asked you all about South Carolina and got into that at the beginning, but it was worth it, worth it to hear all about that. So let's leave people with some practical application. So you gave on a, I think you did like a short video recently Mm -hmm. with three ways to discipline your emotions and your list is good and Mm -hmm. practical. So can you just run through that for our listeners really quick? Yes. So first of all, I I said, keep what you know in front of what you feel because what you know, the truth is going to anchor you, especially when we all know when we've been frustrated or if we're sad or whatever it is, we all know that you're in those moments, it's probably a bad idea to make a decision, maybe even to go have a conversation with somebody so keep what you know in front of what you feel. And a lot of times when I, if all I know is, I know that this feeling is going to pass. I'm going to calm down. I'm not going to be so angry, like in 30 minutes or whatever. Mm-hmm. That is something that's worth holding on to and keeping your wits about you. Um, yeah. And you described that one as self-control, like just short and simple self-control, which I love that you just made this easy for everyone. And the second one was bridle your tongue and lead with logic. Okay. Yeah. So that's the thing. Okay. Bridle your tongue. Again, we always want to have either the last word or the first word. I know that's a thing because I do too, but I, I practice this and it does become easier when I just let somebody else have the last word. If that's what you want your last word to be. Okay. Fine. Yeah. You know, and then sometimes that's the best thing that it, that's to me, that's like, We'll leave it there then, you know, and if you can bridle your tongue, which again, this applies to self-control, right? And James one, James, the whole book of James is great, but James talks about this. Everything can be tamed except for a man's tongue, but we know where our words come from, which is probably what I talked about on your last podcast. It comes from the heart. So we fly off the handle and say things that we'll regret, then we need to examine the heart, not the tongue because that's where all of the words are coming from. But if we can bridle our tongue, then we really are able to put our heart into check and say, if I'm going to regret this later, that's something we'll never be able to take back are the words. So bridle your tongue. And I guarantee that emotion will pass and we'll be so relieved because we won't be left with regret or remorse or guilt over the words that we told somebody else that even an apology, okay, they can forgive us, but they'll never forget what we said. And then um, the last one, transform your mind. Really, really the way to think differently and speak differently is to make sure that our minds are transformed. Romans 12, 2 tells us how to do that. It's a transform, uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to the ways of the world. We're talking about being conformed to, to culture through emotionalism. Being transformed by the renewing of our mind means that we're aligning our thoughts to God's thoughts, which are in the word of God. But the next part of that tells us the why. It says, so that you may prove that good and perfect will of God. 
That's why we are, our minds are transformed so that we know what to do in those heated moments, so that we know how to make the decisions that are difficult to make, the ones that maybe even feel good. It would have felt better to stay in California. It would have felt better to stay there and know what's coming next and be around all the people that I've known my entire life and not have to go through days where I have cried in South Carolina because it's been hard. But it would have only felt good in the moment because there would have been a lot more days of regret that I didn't make a decision that I knew my God was leading my family to. So being transformed by the renewing of your mind isn't just so you think better, isn't just so you can make a better decision. It's not just so in those moments you won't have regret over those highly intense situations. It's so that you know what God's will is in those moments. And you can prove that because your mind isn't thinking like culture, it's thinking like Christ because we've allowed God to transform it as we get into the word. And so those are the the ways to keep your, your emotions controlled and in their place. I'm not saying don't have emotions, don't feel. That's why God gave us our emotions. So life is experienced in a greater way, right? We can actually love God, uh, the being that we have never laid our eyes on. But the emotions are in the position that they're supposed to be in. They were affected by the fall. And if we know what, what God's word says, the emotions won't take precedent in those situations. And it'll save us from a lot of uh, hardship. And mostly the hardship is guilt and remorse and regret and the things that we hate that we said or did when we were emotional. Yeah, very good. I always love some practical application mm-hmm. <laughs> at the end of a podcast, something to take away and actually use. So yeah. well, and I know that I'm going to say to my kids, oh. <laughs> keep what you know in front of what you feel. That's a good one. That's a good one. It is. Sorry. (laughs) It is. Yes. All right, Shanda, can you tell our listeners where they can find you outside of our podcast? Yes. I have a podcast called Her Faith Inspires Podcast where I take cultural issues and I try to tackle them with biblical truth uh, every week on my podcast. I also teach online Christian courses where we uh, teach apologetics courses, how to study the Bible. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I teach the middle schoolers there. So you can go to onlinechristiancourses.com for information there as well. And all my social media handles are Shanda Fulbright. Shanda has been our most frequent guest on this podcast. And I mean, you can see why, right? Like she's just so knowledgeable, yet also so kind. And she just really has a way of communicating. And I think this topic of emotionalism is really important in the culture we live in. So we were really happy to bring you guys this interview today with Shanda. Um, Please do check her out on Instagram, check out her podcast as well. It is a wealth of information to help really get you solid in your faith and what you believe as you approach the world. And yeah, so you can find her socials and everything linked in our show notes. And you can also find us outside the podcast. Our Instagram account is at Boom Clap Podcast. And you can find us individually as well. You can find me, Cecily, on Instagram at cecily.dickey or thegracetogrow.com. And you can find me, Rita, at RitaRogersCo.com or RitaRogersCo on Instagram. Thanks for listening. 